Welcome everybody. Today we're obviously talking about uh, the, about the war in Ukraine, which has been going on for just over a month, which is the 28th of uh, of March. As any good podcast uh, nowadays, we've got to cover it as well. Um, today uh, we've got some great guests to talk about it. We're gonna everybody introduce themselves. Start off with uh, Karina. Hi everyone. My name is Karina. I have a bachelor's degree in politics and international studies, but I'm doing my master's in big data at the moment. And I am basically here because I live close to Russia. I'm from Estonia and uh, I'm ethnically Russian too. And we've got Maria. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm a dual master's degree student between Sciences Po Paris and uh, King's College London in intelligence and international security and specialize in uh, Russia and the former Soviet Union. And I'm here today because I'm interested in the regional spillovers of the Ukraine conflict into the former Soviet Union and as well as other post-communist countries. And last but not least, Deborah. Hello, um, I'm a governance student in my uh, bachelor and in within governance, I'm concentrating or focusing on international relations, international security, and have been studying um, how identity and groups of interest are constructed in um, regional and local conflicts uh, within the last years, um, especially with a focus on narratives within the Donbas war and will contribute from that side. And finally, myself, Suspen. Unfortunately, Aditi wasn't able to make it for this episode, but I'm sure she'll be with us for the next one. And we're going to start from the beginning of the conflict, which was on the 24th of uh, February, early early hours. Uh, and the reasons for why, you know, Putin in his announcement decided that he was going to launch so-called special operation. So there's three main points uh, that, that are usually put forward. Obviously, NATO expansion and provocation uh, into Ukraine and obviously across the years, the surrounding countries that border Russia, the denazification of Ukraine, and uh, obviously the kind of identity that, you know, Putin said very clearly that in many ways, Ukraine is just part of Russia, essentially, in this imperialistic rhetoric. So those are the three points to going to start with. And uh, there's lots to say, kind of, uh, we thought it'd be good to kind of explain these to begin with. Yeah, I mean, NATO's Nazis and nationalism, that seems to be Putin's kind of reasons for entering the war. But looking at NATO first, I think here, like, I think this whole topic in general is probably the most IR like focused episode we've done so far. And it lets us kind of actually talk about IR theory a lot. So the kind of NATO account lends very heavily to this uh, realist interpretation of events. And and very essentially, the, the realist theory of IR is all about about states, about great power politics, um, and this idea that there is a an international kind of anarchy between states. There's no greater power than than them who can control their actions. And so it's it's what states, you know, it's all about survival. And so NATO, the defensive alliance originating in 1949, since 1999, has slowly expanded eastwards. And Putin essentially sees this as a, as a grave threat for not only Russia, but really for himself as well and the regime he's built. But, you know, this is a super controversial and like debated idea because the principles of NATO are ones of kind of self-defense. Um, and you know it stands for the western ideas of like democracy so why would russia why would putin in interpret this as a threat i think a lot of it has to do with the idea that in the 90s there was this kind of again it's very debated but there was this tacit idea that um with the acceptance that of german reunification after the collapse of the soviet union this would be kind of accepted by the the you know to be russian state in agreement for, uh, the, I think the quote is, not one inch East expansion. But of course, uh, 1999, 2004, and some periods after that, NATO did expand East. And I think most importantly, it then got incorporated by some of the Baltic states. So that's 
Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Thank you. Um, which is obviously borders Russia. <clears throat> And the idea of having, you know, NATO personnel, military equipment there. Yeah, it's, it's a bit scary. And, you know, in fair play, when missiles, when military was sent on to Cuba, you know, which is very close to Florida, just off the coast of America, its backyard. Yeah, they were up in arms about it, too. Yeah, just to jump in on uh, the realist argument which then the NATO expansion that you were talking about. I feel like, uh, in a way, for Putin, it's not just about the security threat, but just purely based on how he talks about it in his public statements, well, now and before, partially about prestige for him, because uh, he thinks, so how dare NATO have the audacity to expand without perceiving us, our great state, as a threat. I feel like it might be like a way of gaining respect for him too, and kind of like presenting Russia as this big military superpower that shouldn't be underestimated. Yeah, and I think uh, we're covering these because I think it's very important to begin with these as as we, especially from our Western perspective, we um, always talk about, you know, the invasion and, you know, it's obviously nobody agrees and thinks the, the invasion itself is, is justified, but often the kind of justifications that at least Putin's given are not thoroughly kind of um explored and uh you know although those have been leveraged and taken advantage of by him at the same time i think it's important to, to go through them and try and understand where these are coming from so for example the nato eu expansion just west in general as you were saying suspin i think that you know the us for especially in the 20th century you know you could not put anything in, in the monroe doctrine you could put nothing around uh you know around its its borders um, and so that's an understandable perspective, in my in my opinion. Again, not one that justifies invasion, but it, it's it's understandable. And then the denazification, again, it's another one that's like, it's trying to understand uh, what that actually means, uh, because of course we know, especially with the Azov Battalion, uh, the most prominent, I guess, does have a presence there. But it, the the way that's then been taken and manipulated by the Kremlin is is another story. Yeah, I just wanted to expand a bit on the what uh, the nazification actually means for Putin and the way he presents it. So basically, there have been a lot of far-right parades going on in Ukraine. And from what I remember, they also have far-right party that is actually in the parliament. And that's what Putin called on. He was like, yeah, OK, look, the Nazis are there. Regardless of the fact that this far-right party only has board of like 3% of the voters. And I think actually the Azov Battalion itself is like an integral part of the Ukrainian military. It's like a kind of a branch. They are an integral part of the official state military, if you know what I mean. I mean, yes, but at the same time, it has nothing to do with the regime and the ruling party at the moment. I mean, like Zelensky is Jewish. Ideologically speaking, definitely. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting how he pushes this narrative and like trying to justify his actions. I think it's also in a way like his way of picking an enemy and being a populist. For a lot of people in Russia, Nazis are still the big enemy. And it's basically the Soviet legacy. Well, after after the state now, of course. It's very easy to use in propaganda, very understandable for people as well and very convincing because people in Russia hate Nazis. Would you say that's also perhaps for many people like having dug much into maybe the, the history of, of Ukraine specifically, it's like they see, you know, there is a certain amount of, um, in, in Ukraine of Nazis and people just see that and it's like, oh, okay, then maybe he's not, you know, wrong. But maybe that because that's such a small part of you know say the population you know people back that would you say that maybe is a misrepresentation or misunderstanding of what was what Ukraine has been for all these years essentially which is like not perhaps as unified as you know maybe we tend to think in the Western culture when we think of countries although we have you know lots of divisions but there's bigger divisions within Ukraine. I suppose the question is for who this misunderstanding is, because I think that Putin and like whoever operates this understands really well what's going on, actually. 
yeah but, yeah the leading surely i was thinking more of like the people who are like watching the media and being like oh okay then maybe it's just um, it's impossible for them to actually get the real information because all they get are shocking footage of nazi parades in ukraine and in the baltic states as well yeah we we have some nazis too and that's how they see us being like oh no well we saved you from the Nazis back in the day, and that's how you repay us, basically. I I think it's worth talking about, though. And again, I'm going to preface what I'm saying by, like, in no way does any kind of um, what I'm about to say, like, legitimize the actions of Putin. And, you know, in, in every country around the world, you have, like, far-right neo-Nazi groups. Um, but um, one of the most interesting things I found whilst researching for this episode was that um, when I was when I started like looking into the Euromaidan protests and that you know it led to the overthrow of um, Yukashenko in twenty four in twenty fourteen, um, and the new Ukrainian government, that again this is like contested, but that the far right groups like uh, Right Sector and Svoboda, um, like these groups did have quite a important role in in the overthrow of Yukashenko and in taking part of the protests but that they they were actually quite like small in the overall numbers and whatnot it's just that they were like the most violent groups so the the majority of the protests you know were like uh just like civilians or like other political groups but that these were the violent guys who were like engaging fights with the police and security services that kind of thing but that equally so they that they did have this involvement but again like then looking at the government um you could you might be able to pick out some like uh some of these people gaining some political entry and like positions in government but like overall like no it's not a far-right government at all i just wanted to jump in um and kind of take the conversation towards um, the question of identity and also the link between identity and NATO, um, because I do feel like at the end of the day, they do both um, rhetorics fall within uh, Putin's uh, ideology and what he's tried to portray to the Russian people and to the rest of the world. So NATO expansion, I would say for him represents um, clear aggression and provocation on his sphere of influence and on the sphere of influence of Russia, namely um, the closer you get to territories like Moldova, the closer you get to territories such as Georgia, the more um, uh, provoking it is towards Putin, who's been trying to portray Russia as this grand country, trying to revive this uh, shining castle upon a hill that Russia is, uh, this Eurasian perspective that uh, Russia is a distinct culture that's here to be separate from both the West and the East and even revive the, the cult of personality that communist leaders used to have as well. So really uh, going on to what Karina said a few minutes ago, the, the, the thing of NATO being a direct threat to the grandeur that is Putin and Russia, I do feel falls um, also within his ideology of uh, Russian identity and Russian nationalism. And this is why because Russia is such a grand country, needs to protect its Russians in the near abroad, in the sphere of influence of the ex-USSR, countries that are now independent, but do still do fall within the sphere of influence of what used to be the USSR. And even Russia today sees that as such. And, um, and so this is why for them, Ukraine should still follow their rules, their way of doing things. Um, and what Putin says should be applied in and Ukraine, but with Zelensky today and Zelensky getting closer to NATO, that's a direct threat to the future, let's say, of Russia as a great country who has power over its near abroad. That's a really interesting point. And I think that also ties into the kind of con constructivist interpretation um, within international relations theory, which shies away from looking at, you know, things purely as like, so the issue of the realism is that all, all these things are, are a given. Um, and yes, the state's the most important thing. It's all about power. Well, actually, no, it's, it's also about the ideas these world leaders have, how they view and interpret the world themselves. And it's these things like Russian nationalism, the identity that play into it. But like, that's a really interesting point as well about how, again, those states like Georgia that are so close to Russia. And again, you've got to keep in mind that uh, Ukraine, Georgia, 
in 2008, they were told, yes, they will become NATO members, you know, like, even though there wasn't actually a plan for this, given uh, a path to membership, this was said that will affect how Russia, how Putin sees the spheres of influence around him. At this point, what you also made clear is how, yeah, how leaders interpret the world and also in, especially in Russia, which is an autocratic system, how media portray the world in narratives um, has immense power, especially when we look at the last eight years of the conflict of the war in the Donbass. So the narrative of this big Russia uniting all Russian people within its holy legacy, um, a lot of ties um, go um, back to the Orthodox Church and also to the Tsarist legacy. So there are different narratives playing a part here, I would say, and also different ideological concepts, which are not necessarily directly historically accurate. But for example, the fact that there was a state or like a region called Novorossiya in the Donbas is enough for Putin to cite it in several speeches and call like the whole Donbass, um, he did so in 2000, 2014 after Crimea was annexed, a part of Novorossiya, and he very strategically, I would say, implanted this narrative uh, in media throughout the war, history of the war in the last um, eight years of um, the Donbass being originally a Russian region and was just given to Ukraine by Russia uh, some years ago some centuries ago. And this historical revisionism, I think it has enormous power in shaping the reality of, of the war, um, especially in making um, international uh, stakeholders. So people looking at the situation in Russia and in Ukraine and the war in Donbas since the last eight years from the outside with not necessarily the historical understanding or experience of uh, communism and maybe also not the expertise um, about the regional situation. When I would say these stakeholders are confronted with such narratives, it creates a lot of confusion. And this would also lead to the question why pe people didn't react earlier, right? Like why weren't there sanctions earlier um, towards Russia? Uh, while the war is going on in Donbas after Euromaidan. I would say definitely constructivism can have some answers here in place and say, yeah, the narratives which were constructed were quite confusing and it was not really clear um, if there were agents behind the narrative strate strategically implanting these narratives or if there were really, really legitimate interests, for example, the Donetsk, Luhansk Republic, behind the narrative and who were like uttering their concerns and their interests, right? Before we go into talking about the kind of um, <clears throat> international reactions, I, I thought I'd just quickly also point out that the power of these narratives domestically is very important. Before the annexation of Crimea in January 2013, uh, Putin's approval polls were you know, showing like I think 62%, but in a country like Russia, that's actually not that great. But then after the annexation, there was a huge increase. Um, May 2014, that went up to 85.9%. And finally, it, it's it, it worth thinking about just how much Putin himself believes in this, you know, these ideas of unity and Eurasianism. And just thinking about the essay he penned last year, which spoke of Belarus, um, Ukraine, Russia being one greater people, and again, him not actually recognizing Ukraine as a sovereign entity with its own sovereign history. Yeah, I was just going to, uh, I think that's a great point, I was just going to say, kind of link it back to IR theories. When I think of IR theories, in, in like at the time, it's not necessarily theories, but theorists. So when we think of the big Mearsheimer and Eikenberry debate on the future of the liberal international order, um, I think this has been an interesting kind of uh, unfolding of events which kind of touch upon that for sure um, because of how the West has responded in a lot more unity than maybe lots of uh, people would have thought, maybe in a way that's more um, uh, in line with what Eikenberry would have argued rather than the kind of realist perspective that uh, Mir Sharma thought where like, you know, and which is kind of an idea we've, we've 
been feeling I think does exist but uh, maybe not as as imminent as we thought about kind of a Europe especially and a NATO these Western institutions and countries which are kind of falling apart in the sense when it comes to alliances uh, there was a lot of debate at the beginning of the conflict with the support uh, that Germany for example would give to Ukraine because of, of, of North Stream 2 uh, which is the pipeline uh, has essentially been constructed between Russia and Germany for, for gas transport to Europe. And so, and that, and uh, uh, the bigger, bigger and broader kind of response by the West, I think is, has been, yeah, interesting to look at. And I, when this was only a few days, it was the first weekend after the conflict started. So it must've been the 27th, uh, 28th, something like that. Uh, I went down to London in Downing Street where the first kind of uh, round, let's say, of, of process against the conflict started. And I went there to like kind of um, talk to people as well, ask what they thought. There's lots of international people, as you'd expect, um, lots of people from, from Poland, Lithuania, especially, I would say. Um, and I was asking them, you know, what they thought about their country's uh, response to the beginning of, of the conflict. And everybody was quite kind of happy with the kind of the equipment that was being sent and, and stuff like that. Um, but often it pops up and and we've heard this a lot in the media of like the extra step would be to kind of establish this this no fly zone in ukraine uh which has been kind of kind of controversial as well obviously because that was essentially mean the west fighting russia directly right because to establish a no fly zone you're well you need to take down command and control centers uh, pertaining to russia russian jets which means killing russian uh, military, so Russian citizens. So it's literally direct conflict with NATO. So I think, you know, and obviously we've got the sanctions and I think, yeah, it's it's been an interesting one one to follow. And I think the West has come together maybe in more unity than we thought, especially with the sanctions. It was done quite quickly at the beginning. Um, but what do you guys think of, of kind of the response? Yeah, I was just thinking about the refugees. The international response was actually surprisingly good, especially if we start drawing parallels with whatever response was to war in Syria and other conflicts in, in the Middle East, given the fact that EU countries and the UK were literally welcoming refugees from Ukraine with open arms, being like, yes, we come, we give you jobs. Um, British and Estonia, we also gave them free transport, which is very interesting and kind of makes me think about how uh, we still in Europe in 2022 have this idea of the other, and we are more likely to welcome people that have, well, not similar mentality to us, but the ones that we can relate to better. I suppose, given that it's the European country and the refugees are obviously white. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. It's been something quite, for me, quite ridiculous, really, um, in Italy, uh, which is basically we've got this kind of uh, right wing uh, party, which is uh, Lega, which is led by this guy called Salvini. And basically, he's always his whole political campaign over the last, I don't know how many years now, has been on kind of trying to stop refugees from coming into Italy and all of that. And since the war started in Ukraine, that's shifted completely where he's been like, he actually went to the border between Poland and Ukraine to like speak to a, um, uh, who was it? So, some, somebody local um, in Poland. And and basically uh, because he's worn, like uh, Salvini's worn like Putin, t-shirts in the past like in the european parliament or something like that he was basically made uh, ridiculed in front of everybody and in, in like um, in this kind of press conference that we're supposed to give there's a video out there it's quite ridiculous but it's just outstanding i think that that's such an obvious example but like yeah it is definitely a thing that people um because you know um you know people are coming from ukraine there, there's been this shift let's say in, in how uh, people you know are perceived yeah it's a bit hard to not you know it's a bit hard to ignore like the absolute change in uh, reception compared to like for example the 
the refugees from Syria. I mean, it, it's it's good that we are treating the Ukrainian refugees like this. And again, I think the latest figures were like 3.6 million have left the country and, you know, six point something have been internally displaced. Like this is the largest um, refugee crisis in Europe since the Second World War. It's, it's devastating. It's terrible. In an ideal world, we would have a universal response, not based on, you know, proximity. But in terms of the wide ranging responses, I mean, again, NATO, the military response has been like very swift as well. And so they're sending like, you know, anti-air missiles, anti-tank missiles, and they are like maneuvering battle groups kind of within these NATO countries to have this kind of like military posture ready and this deterrence. And that and that's what opens like an interesting avenue. Well, look, these munitions, these weapons are being used to kill Russian soldiers, um, even if NATO aren't directly involved, they are indirectly involved. And there's also this like idea, well, threat of escalation if Russia starts targeting these weapon supplies. Um, also, not only the response of NATO, but also the response of countries surrounding Ukraine and in the former Soviet Union uh, region that are not part of NATO and how um, I found quite interesting their reaction with, for instance, Moldova, who is now pursuing an EU membership and is really pushing on EU and NATO to include it, um, include the country in its sphere because of the pure fear of Russia and what could come next. I think we could we can all remember um, that meme that was circulating through the Internet with Lukashenko um, showing on a map um, what the Ukraine crisis is looking at. And if you zoom in the section with Moldova, there was some sort of military direction pointed towards Transnistria and that created quite a lot of, of let's say, very uh, scared responses. And so I think since, since then, Moldova, or not, not just since then, but in general, Moldova has been quite scared of Russia and what it could do um, to Transnistria, pushing it to move towards an EU NATO membership and um, trying to create some really relationships with the West and same for Georgia. Georgia has also been pursuing now an EU membership much more swiftly, again, because of the fear of uh, what if South Ossetia and Abkhazia are next? Um, if Russia had so easily moved into Ukraine, what about them? Sorry, so just really quickly then, Maria, would you be able to just um, expand on the conflict that you brought up uh, with Moldova and Georgia, respectively? So both of these countries actually have breakaway regions, which have had conflicts in the past, which were Russian-backed. So first with Moldova, Moldova until 1991 was part of the USSR, declared its independence um, after the fall of the USSR in 1991. And you had Transnistria, which is a Russian-speaking and Russian-identifying very small region in the country, who decided to also declare independence from Moldova and declare its intent to join Russia. And that uh, resulted in a full-fledged conflict between Moldova and Transnistria. And of course, the Transnistrians were backed by Russia. And the conflict was very bloody and ended up with Russia positioning troops, or as they would say, peacekeepers, in the region, which have been there ever since, and have been undermining um, Moldovan sovereignty and territorial integrity. And so with the conflict right now in Ukraine, Moldovans are scared that they're going to be next on the list of countries that Russia is going to attack to try to snatch away another breakaway region and try to uh, foment uh, this independentist movement within Transnistria. And then when you look at Georgia, Georgia also declared its independence in 1991. And you have two breakaway regions in Georgia, which are Abkhazia and South Ossetia, which also have a distinct identity, not Russian, but also but a quite a very significant identity. And while there's been conflicts all throughout history between the Georgian identity and the South Ossetian and Abkhazian identity, I would say the biggest conflict was in 2008 when Russia invaded both of these regions and backed the independentist movement, which ended up being a full-fledged war between Georgians and Russians within these two breakaway territories. And the event was very traumatizing for Georgia and really severed relationships between Georgia and Russia for since then, you know, even today, the relationship is quite bad. And with the conflict in Ukraine, again, same as Moldova, they're scared that Russia is going to uh, lay a claim again on South Ossetia and Abkhazia and try to help uh, the independence movement, and which will turn again into a war. And this is why both Moldova and Georgia have been pushing for their EU citizenship. Um, 
However, while Moldova is a uh, militarily neutral country, Georgia has also uh, declared its intent to join NATO, as we know. And even if you look at Scandinavian countries, uh, a lot of countries are saying that maybe Sweden will decide to join NATO at some point because of how pressing the issue seems to be and how important the need for protection is uh, when facing Russia. So the international response is not just from NATO or EU countries. It's really a more generalized move towards, let's say, more consolidation. And the economic impact as well. I mean, we obviously need to wait for that to see how how it plays out um, and, and what kind of repercussions those have, because it will take time for them to, to, I mean, they have taken effect, obviously, but it will take time to see the long-term consequences, both for Russian and both for the rest of the world, really. I don't know, I was uh, I was speaking with a professor at university and she was saying that she was speaking, um, this was a couple of weeks ago now, um, to like professionals in like uh, finance and, and kind of the economics uh, field. And they were saying that was at least gonna be like, 10 to 15 years of like um, the impact that this is going to have on, on the Russian economy for sure. Um, which, yeah, it will be interesting to see how kind of the ripple effects of that are as well, I think. Um, and kind of linking back to the uh, more military assistance that you're talking about, Sospin, I think, yeah, again, the, the West has been very compact and very you know, they've sent lots of, I mean, they've always, some people were also asking to send, you know, kind of uh, fighter jets as well, which uh, apparently it's not possible because, you know, you need to be trained to be able to use that and also not logistically very easily, uh, easy to to, to, to transport. Um, but I think other than that, like anti, uh, anti-tank uh, missiles from the U, from, from, um, from the United States um, have been, you know, very effective um and um and uh, i don't know at the beginning and i think lots of people online especially were saying how you know well maybe the 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 invasion isn't going as planned but eventually russia will win and i have to say i used to think that especially at the beginning with time and you know it's 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 not so clear-cut i think and maybe we can get into that more um later on in, in in the discussion yeah, before moving on, I think I would just also say that I think one of the biggest like shocks in terms of response has been Germany, because there's been this total reset in terms of German foreign policy. Like, like it's funny, well, funny, like at the start of the war, or just before it, you had Germany saying that they'll send like 5,000 helmets, and now the most recent update is actually we'll be sending, we'll be supplying like weapons, which is, you know, a stark change direction from previous policy of not supporting kind of like conflicts and that the german military will now you know be receiving 100 million euros worth of investment and they'll be meeting that two percent target of nato uh, yeah it's like a really big deal because um from my understanding like because of the history the the idea of like kind of military involvement and military culture is like very very low in german in Germany, but now it's, that's changed. Yeah, yeah, and I think they they have been improving, like upping NATO members have been uh, upping their uh, spending on the military at the moment, like to prepare for the future as well. And when it comes to sanctions, would you guys would you obviously a speculation at this point? But would you guys think, and I guess in the aftermath of the conflict, are these gonna gonna continue? Are they gonna be slowly taken away? How do you think that might unfold? I doubt they'll be um, taken away so easily just because at the end of the day, the, the biggest issue is the leader himself. So as long as you have uh, Putin in power being quite aggressive towards the West, if, I guess that's a, euf- a euphemism, but um, I think uh, sanctions will remain. But I just wanted to jump also with, on what has been said on on um, NATO spending and on Germany, um, you know, sending in armament and weapons. It's It's kind of a bad omen towards like the, the securitization of the world and we're going towards a world again with people where where countries thinking are thinking that arming themselves is the best solutions towards peace and that's quite scary in my opinion because that's literally what we've tried to escape in the last century decades um with international organizations and a new world order where you would reach peace through negotiation and not through war yes it's interesting to have an interest a change of policy from germany but i don't think it's a positive outlook for the future for any country really to think that um, that's how you solve a conflict 
also jumping in on Germany, this reaction, like their foreign policy um, change of direction was very much influenced by other EU states, which had a very heavy reaction to the 500 helmets supply help. I mean, the Polish um, representative actually spoke in German to uh, the, the press and said this has to be a joke and we expect more from Germany. So there's also this internal dynamic within the EU, within the Western EU states and Eastern EU states, and Eastern EU states demanding now from the Western EU states to provide in the sense of providing weapons, providing more support, because also behind all of that is Nord Stream 2, which Germany planned throughout the last eight years, although the war was going on in Donbass. Although the Crimea was annexed, there were several talks about abandoning Nord Stream 2, but the, the party in power in Germany could always push the plan through. So to abandon Nord Stream now was definitely necess necessary because I think the other EU state, talking about internal dynamics, wouldn't have tolerated, um, wouldn't have accepted um, if Germany would have still just proceeded with it. The pipeline is not finished, but it's built and there have been a lot of billions of euros have been invested into that project. So I guess they will do something with it in the future. I think I don't think they abandoned it completely. It just it lays on ice, but they definitely have it in the back of their minds. Yeah, I mean, the whole Nord Stream 2 project is just is just so kind of interesting and confusing, I guess. I mean, this project's been in the work for years. It's, it's 10 billion euros. Surely they can't just scrap it forever. Although, you know, the United States has made a big deal of this, hoping it'd be scrapped. Uh, they even before, they even said they'd place sanctions on like the European companies, Russian companies like involved in the project. Although I believe this is only actually applied to the uh, Russian projects, uh, companies. And for a lot of people, it looks like this like glaring weakness. Like, why are you increasing your reliance on Russian uh, gas? But I, I think an interesting angle here <clears throat> is to look at it. Well, okay, look, once we bring Russia to the table here, Germany, but, but really the EU can use its role as a kind of the idea of like a regulatory state, because through the EU laws and regulations have to be incorporated and accepted in order for this project to commence, that will, to an extent, certainly forced the Russian companies involved and to extend the Russian state to like play by EU rules here uh, if they if they want the gas to flow but overall I it does yeah it does my head and I just don't care why they do it along with the whole you know closing down the nuclear plants and everything yeah itself but um I think like what's been raised Talking about the the pressures placed on you know Putin domestically on his regime through sanctions, but even through the domestic kind of um, response to the war, what people are saying in Moscow is very interesting because I think I think whilst there is still strong or you know there's support still there domestically, but you've seen enormous protests um, across Russia. And it's also like, I, I saw a video on Twitter where uh, this woman was holding up just like a blank sign, you know, just a piece of paper. And, and then she gets dragged away like five seconds later. Like, it's it's crazy the extent to which the security state is out there enforcing it. But how long can that go on for? Yeah, and building on to that, the fact that there's no more free press, um, there's really nobody to report truly what might be going on. Uh, domestically or trying to get some information in. Um, so so really, Putin is, is consolidating his uh, authoritarian state and his power in his own hands and really trying to uh, censor uh, the civil society, although people are trying and they're doing their best to protest what's going on. But because of the fact that there's no more free press, it's difficult to get um, information in and out for both people outside of Russia and in Russia. I think what's happened... With, with the conflict like the, the diplomatic relationships with the world have you know except for like your China and the likes are basically done you know with the figure that is Putin for at least a long time right 
Um, and so I don't I don't see how that's going to work in the aftermath of this for him, um, because, you know, trade relationships and, and, and for all of other things are important for a country to run. And so if you don't reestablish those, then I don't really see how that's going to work. And I, I don't know enough, I guess, about the Russian kind of hierarchy and how succession would work then. Maybe nobody really knows exactly because it doesn't happen that often. Um, but, you know, it's uh, it'll be interesting because I'm sure, you know, maybe whoever comes next will want to bring those ties back uh, and maybe dissociate with the figure that is Putin and associate the war with the figure that is Putin. Uh, but that's not, not necessarily the case. I guess I might be wrong in the in the sense that, you know, even when this seizes, Putin will remain in power. We'll, we'll have to see. But I think it'll be an interesting to, to see how that actually unfolds. Yeah, I would agree that it's quite hard to kind of estimate what the future is going to look like. I mean, with um, this week with um, Alexei Navalny got eight more years in prison, right? So it's any potential opposition to the power is completely done. And so you can only hope that within Putin's uh, inner political circle within the Siloviki, maybe you could find some sort of solution. Everyone's hoping for someone to take him out of there. But um, but it's quite um, almost unrealistic to think that there is someone out there right now that could take him out. You know, with Biden rec- Biden's recent uh, sleep- slip up, let's say, this past few days saying that uh, Putin cannot cannot stay in power anymore. That needs to be taken out. Um, well, by who? I mean, I I really cannot see who that could be. And I guess going off of Matteo's point about succession, if if you follow the natural course of recent Russian history, then they're probably grooming someone behind the scenes to take over Putin in a few years when he's decided that he's finally done uh, going after the rest of the world and someone will appear and take over his position and consolidate the authoritarian state even more. But we can only speculate. Yeah, and I think the, the, we saw when the in that video when the um, the, the war was about to, to begin, that exchange between Putin and I think it was Spy Chief, uh, it's called Sergei Narishkin. Um, and basically, you know, there was hesitation there, maybe not from an, you know, kind of ideological standpoint, but from a, like maybe what you know the repercussions of this were going to be or maybe even the how successful did this operation was going to be because of maybe how it had been planned and stuff like that and i think this kind of brings us into maybe the kind of more military aspect of it uh, in the sense of what were putin's plans beforehand i mean of course nobody knows for certain except probably this small circle around him but like you know it was supposed apparently to be supposed to be a quick war and you know we're still here over a month later it makes me think what what the plans were and what's been going wrong and especially i'd probably start from the intelligence side of things uh, because and i'm uh, you know i was part of that i thought the invasion was not going to happen mostly we had the u.s intelligence that you know and the west intelligence that was outspokenly telling us you know it's happening it's happening but they did keep giving us days and then the days they would go past and then it didn't happen but they were like certain uh, which i think is quite interesting in itself because it's kind of a different approach of like how intelligence uh, has has worked um in the past it's like kind of releasing this intelligence into the public which i think acts as a bit of a deterrent to maybe what putin's actions going to be because if you're you know telling everybody publicly this is what's going to happen and then you go on and do that if you're thinking of doing that then that might kind of hold you back and that's, we've seen this also with like claiming false flags attacks saying that putin is going to you know claim false flag and and so that we should be expecting those to happen i think it's been an interesting approach but if anything they did get that right um, that the invasion was coming but yeah maybe how it would how the conflict would actually unfold on the ground wasn't the way you know most of us expected it to go yeah there's a lot of interesting stuff to to pick up there in terms of the intelligence side of things i heard is it the fsb like the head of but essentially a head of russian intelligence being put under like house arrest because of how the war went because that you know obviously putin had been told told lies that the war that they'll be met with open arms by ukrainians because they'll be seen as liberators of the nazi regime no that's not the case that it'd be quick and easy no none of that was true but in terms of like the actual war effort, I think what I've been um, kind of listening to and reading, learning is that, OK, essentially, like this war came about purely because of like political, um, political interference and like will of Putin. 
because it because it has been like quite a disaster in terms of like the logistics and everything because like you saw the that footage of like that huge um like traffic jam of like tanks and stuff you saw like whatever vehicles just being left on the road because they'd run out of like fuel soldiers using uh civilian phones for communications like there is just an absolute blunder here like incompetence and essentially that might not be purely because like oh russia's underfunded under equipped that sort of thing um but actually because like this war plan was kept so secret by putin and like was enacted like so so quickly uh, before the start of the war that there wasn't actually time for the proper logistics to be put in place you know if you're looking at this from a purely historical standpoint the how long this war has been going on and how many deaths we're having and how the war is unfolding it, it feels like we're re reproducing what's happened in chechnya and it's really terrible to think that after all these years and the disaster that was chechnya how the russian army has not learned anything and the russian uh, leadership has not learned anything and that just goes to show i think how the uh, authoritarian state plays such a big role in determining what information gets to Putin and how corrupt it is, how corrupt the information is, how politicized the information is, and how maybe he's been not lied to, but the, the information about the state of the army, the, the corruption within the army, the conscripts, the state of the conscripts, the, the, the state of training has actually been politicized to fit what he wanted, his political goals, his achievements instead of actually telling him the reality that maybe the army's not ready, maybe the army's completely corrupt, people are not trained enough for this, we don't have enough supplies, food. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, Putin asked China to send them food for the soldiers. So clearly, there's a complete disbalance between what was maybe promised to him from his army generals versus what we're seeing on the ground, and how literally nothing really tangibly changed in Chechnya. And and I think for, for Putin as a as a leader is a complete failure in that sense. Also like this video that my friend um is doing a master's IR, Matt sent to me about like um this kind of like analyst, whatever, talking about the state of the Russian military and how essentially he was saying that a lot of the money of the budget was being allocated towards these big prestige like global force projection areas like the navy or it's uh, rocket forces you know the nuclear weapons and you know there's this whole program of like modernization in terms of all that stuff um but that the the rest of the army was being allocated like quite a smaller amount of the budget yeah because i mean especially because he was the you know russia was the one that began the conflict right so they supposedly should have had you know war plans um you know put out there quite quite in, in detail which i'm sure they did but something must have gone wrong right and as you say i think the they had the advantage but it seems like they have been spending all this money in the military in departments which you don't need to invade ukraine essentially whilst ukraine on the other hand well has been training solely to defend itself from a russian invasion and it's been giving all the all the equipment by the west specifically for a ground invasion so the the weapons to defend for a ground invasion and obviously for the skies yeah it's interesting because i think that's maybe one of the reasons why we've seen um the events unfold in the way they have it's maybe how the investments in in the in the military specific to the preparing for this kind of conflict um were and maybe were misplaced well, building on that, the fact that just recently Russia said that they're not going to focus their military efforts on the Donbass region exclusively. I don't know what kind of conclusions we could draw from that. Either they realized that trying to take over entirety of Ukraine was not necessarily the best strategic idea. Um, maybe they're, they're preparing for something else. Maybe their goal now is to cut off Ukraine from the Black Sea and kind of to join Odessa to the, to the Donbass region. But um. I know I feel like building on the whole issue of Russia's incompetence in this conflict, although it, it's not to be, I mean, I feel like we're talking a lot about like how they've quite failed, but I mean, I don't think they are to be underestimated either. They're a very rich, powerful army regardless, but um, the fact that now they, they've decided to concentrate their whole effort in the Donbass could point towards the fact that they're indeed quite uh, weak at the moment. Yeah, and I mean, they haven't sent all the troops that were on the borders, uh, you know, that's surrounded in Belarus, etc. So definitely from a power military standpoint of like pure resources, 
yeah, there's no way like that that you know, they, they've still got a lot of those capabilities. And you know, out of what 180, 190,000 of people were on the border, like within Russia, uh, the Russian military, there's like many other hundreds of thousands, right? They really wanted to. So we'll see. Again, depends on the objectives here, which is, I mean, I think the invasion of the whole country itself was crazy from the beginning never really made much sense in my opinion but but yeah we'll we'll see we'll see and i think maybe the other important thing we want to we might want to touch on is the kind of information warfare and kind of more asymmetric sides of things both yeah the information warfare and the kind of hybrid warfare so like cyber information which for many years the west especially as speculated as being kind of the russian way of war which you know this i think um, has, has proven otherwise um, also, when we look at cyber attacks, for example, I mean, they've be, they have been, but for example, why wasn't there a bigger, you know, cyber attack taken just prior to the invasion to take down, I don't know, certain power grids? And surely the Russia, Russia um, has a very good insight into kind of how all the infrastructure works in Ukraine from that st- from an IT standpoint. And so, again, they're not really sure why that didn't happen. It's interesting to see dynamics that we thought were going to be unfolding one way have you know proven otherwise yeah considering um cyber warfare i think the reality of cyber war clearly we can clearly see that the reality is often exaggerated in forecasts because most of the attacks um were made both regionally and um not really so what what i was trying to say is for example most attacks without going too deep into the topic are denial of service attacks so they're not big attacks on infrastructures like um which would be maybe the more clever way of starting a war and the war has rather focused on an information warfare which is again tied to narratives and how narratives are reproduced and um, restructured and also spread throughout the internet and i think not just russian trolls and bots but especially people sharing uh, these stories people actively being emotionally emotionally touched by stories um, by narratives where the goal of um, information warfare so to destabilize regions um, for example in the donbas before the war before the official invasion, there had has been a lot of information warfare ex, uh, concentrated in uh, in the Donbas about uh, people and their identities there. And what we can see is, um, I think that uh, Russian media or Russian stakeholders tried to mobilize people for separatism, what which they su- succeeded in with different narratives. And these narratives were adopted in a project-like manner. So they jumped from from the Novorossiya narrative which they employed before the civil war was going on in Donbas. So they kind of aired um, that narrative throughout Russian media and on Twitter and other social media network networks before the civil war started to kind of... Th- there has been studies which show that they um, implemented that narrative about the civil war in Donbas before it has started. Uh, right after the annexation of Crimea. And um, I think the the extent of information warfare uh, in, can be seen in, th- in that example, that um, the soft power actually had a hard power effect. And this is very unique because this hasn't really been possible the last years. So a lot of media, for example, is broadcast in, in in the US, like ideological fight between CNN and Fox News would be an example, but often they do not lead to hard power being employed. So people actually fighting each other. Yeah, and it could be, I don't know, it's been, I don't know where you guys get, you know, obviously you get news from, from platforms, but also from social media, right? I think most people do. And I think this is perhaps, you know, obviously the first proper war where we've been in this media environment um, and it's interesting to see how that's been unfolding um, as well and I think most of this we'll have to analyze in the aftermath as well but for example on Twitter I was hearing uh, that even the content that is being seen often is like one to two days even late sometimes so what you're seeing isn't necessarily what's going on in that moment or that day um, and it's you know just popped up on that specific 
social media platform and it's being reshared. And even the resharing itself, I found, you know, as much as I try to perhaps, you know, kind of balance, um, you know, what, trying to understand really what, what's going on in many ways, the videos that come out are basically uh, mostly from from a rush from sorry from a Ukrainian perspective, and that's probably the circles you know the people we follow. But um, it, it's interesting, like you know what we're seeing is not the full picture, uh, and I think it's important to be aware of that. But beyond all the misinformation, disinformation that comes with it. I, I want the Korean just because like obviously you have family in Estonia and everything that's like very close to the conflict. Obviously we're um here in like the UK and everything with BBC, CNN, and all the stuff. We get like a very specific picture of what's going on. But I was wondering like are things different, kind of closer to the conflict, closer to the region? Like what kind of news is being shared there? So it is obviously like more regionally focused and uh, so in the Estonian press we get more on how on the potential impacts of the war on our country because obviously Russia is quite a big security threat for Estonia and the rest of the Baltic states too. So that's a big part of it. Uh, there's a lot of discussion on the refugee crisis as well in the press on the impact of this whole thing on Russians living in Estonia. Also, our politicians and media are usually very quite, very outspoken in their condemnation towards whatever happens in Russia always, even before the war. And now they became like a lot more silent about that, probably because they're scared. So that's the situation. So it's a, it's a bit um, out of place now, but I remember um, before the pod, you said to me something I, I thought was just really interesting because I, I I'm not familiar with like kind of um, Russian culture very much, but you, but in terms of like the kind of the, the Russian people and like, you know, the, the suffering that they might, they might be going through as a result of sanctions, as a result of everything. But you kind of said something really interesting about the kind of like the their will and like the kind of culture, that attitude that they have. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very interesting mindset. So as we can see now, the sanctions are actually not hitting the Putin's electorate, which is mostly working class people and like poor people, which is the majority of the population in Russia. The sanctions are mostly hitting the the middle class and the creative class, unfortunately. But yeah, Russian people pretty much have this mentality. And there is even a saying, I don't know, am I allowed to curse in Russian? Or is it a family friendly thing? <laughs> um, which goes like, uh, which means that, yeah, we've never lived rich. So why the fuck should we start now? And yeah, uh, a lot of people do actually support Putin. And I've watched uh, some... Uh, public opinion videos and they're like yeah we don't care about your western crap we don't care about mcdonald's we're gonna build our own things and we're gonna have our own things and uh, people are pretty much happy about it and they are very prepared to go through whatever hardship it takes uh, for them it's important for their identity they'd rather be feared and respected in the world other than live wealthy so to say yeah, I think that's maybe kind of tying back to what Maria you said earlier of like a trend we don't want to see of like with Germany and kind of militarization. I think another trend is more isolation and more division. It's like we're going to build our own stuff. We're going to do everything our own. It's like it's just going to create a world where, you know, every, we're just detached. It's kind of going backwards from that globalized um, sense. But yeah, and I think, Karina, what you said is really interesting, because especially at the beginning, I remember the media in the West was like, this is, there's like this big kind of slowing. It's like, it's Putin's war, not Russia's, like the Russian people's war. And it's like, that's such an oversimplification of everything. And uh, perhaps from what you were saying, even even just a misunderstanding of, of many, of, of kind of the situation. Um, and so, yeah, that was very interesting. I mean, yes, his popularity among the voters also increased as the res as a result of this war. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's insane. That's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. 
just to think of like closing up the ideas of what the future might hold in in light of everything that's going on recently there's been the switch to the focus on the donbass region um although obviously there's still like fighting and strikes outside of this and you know to what extent is this just another part of like the information war is the russian society the stake and turn more inwards what does this mean for the quote-unquote liberal rules-based world order yeah, I mean, Donetsk and Luhansk Republic, the narrative from Russia goes that they asked for help, right? So Big Brother Russia is just helping their small, smaller countries, Little Russia, how it's actually called. I would definitely say that whatever happens the next months, years, the Donbas will definitely be stronger, have stronger ties to Russia. They were economically dependent on Russia before because internally on the region on a regional scale they haven't been really because they were cut off from ukraine right so they because they established their own republics um which are not internationally recognized they they failed to implement a working tax system and so on and so on so they were economically very much dependent on russia the last years and so after the war within the war um, I would definitely say um, they, that the Donbas will become something like a little Russia, something Putin envisioned. And maybe the goal was not even whole Ukraine. Maybe that was the goal to have Crimea and in the Donbas, Luhansk and Donetsk. And what does, does that mean for Ukraine then? Because if that is possible, what else can be done to the other regions, which also had separatist tendencies? That's the question. Yeah, in the meanwhile, uh, Ukraine said that they're ready to talk neutrality. So I feel like Zelensky is kind of is ready to see this war over as soon as possible. And if that means that Ukraine is to be neutral and to give up its uh, its aspirations, then so be it because of the humanitarian disaster that is the conflict right now. If you look at uh, Mariupol, you have about 175,000 people still trapped in there with no possibility of having a humanitarian corridor organized for the moment. So I hope that the, the future will look brighter for Ukraine. But if neutrality is the only way forward, then I wonder how Putin will rejoice from this sort of gain, as well as from Donbass. Yeah, to me, it's crazy to think that if if in the end, the Donbass is, is going to be kind of essentially Russia, he could have done that from the beginning <laughs> with, you know, killing so many less people in general from on both sides, obviously, avoiding the just the diplomatic mess that he's created. Uh, the sanctions would have been a lot less and probably would have achieved the same goal, which is why I thought was going to happen in the beginning. But if that's the ultimate goal now, I guess, then yeah, I don't know. It's it's crazy. I, I think it's uh, it have been done and, and it would have fit in with his cold strategy that he's done until now, you know, take a bit of time. Kind of like you know, you've got Crimea, then you uh, announced uh, the independence of Luhansk and Donetsk, and and you slowly kind of advance on this thin line, which is not war, and you can't really be sanctioned to that much, but also gaining territory. But I guess he decided to do otherwise and take the consequences of that. I feel like even if the outcome is the same and uh, Ukraine uh, decides to be neutral and give away the territories it was important to show the resistance and that this that ukraine and other countries too are willing to actually fight for what they believe in and they're not going to just give up the territories just because putin wants to because if that keeps on happening he he might think that he can just go and take whatever he wants from now on and I feel like given that there is such a strong resistance came as a shock to him, going to be a lot more careful about this type of thing from now on. Yeah, would you think maybe of like Ukraine itself, like what's we talk a lot about Russia and Putin, but like what about Ukraine, um, kind of the political system there and the future of like maybe even kind of rebuilding, bringing people who have left back and assuming obviously that you know most of the territory is going to you know go back to to the country yeah i don't know just the future of that of ukraine itself I, i'd say assuming people will want to return honestly because for some people it might actually have become a very good opportunity to move out of ukraine and try living in the eu an opportunity for a better life 
So it's very likely that a lot of people will be like, no, I'm I'm just going to stay. I'm not coming back. So, yeah, we're going to see a big Ukrainian diaspora outside of Ukraine, interestingly. Uh, yeah, building on, on that, I mean, it's important to say that while Zelensky has been able to do some sort of power consolidation and unite Ukrainians around, you know, his persona and his, his you know, strength as a, a, a commander in chief and in, as a leader in chief of Ukraine, I mean, it's important to say that up until the war, he was quite controversial as a president and, and did raise a lot of eyebrows about like how he was handling um, issues of corruption, even though he did promise to be the, the president of the people. Um, and also important to mention that it's only recently that Ukraine has taken a toll, like a turn towards like more of a democracy. Up until 2018, 2019, it was still very much so uh, a very corrupt and country that was very still influenced by Russia. So I do agree with the fact that perhaps a lot of people did leave uh, with the opportunity for a better life, although hopefully Zelensky did manage to gather enough uh, popularity to, to, and to un, un, unity around Ukraine that people would want to come back. But yeah. Uh, were there any other points that anybody would like to make as final regards before we, we close off? I mean, we could talk about NATO expansion, but I don't know if it's relevant. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. I was going to say, what about, the, well, exactly depends on how the kind of conflict fi finishes if it you know if russia is in a position of power then they can kind of maybe negotiate with the west on like what that aspect of things is going to look like in the future but if they retreat into taking just the donbass then that's a position of more like weakness and then i wonder how that's going to shape the nato eu alliance with 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 ukraine you know that's exactly what i was thinking about but until we know what the outcome of the war is it's like it's i don't know who knows right yeah, I mean, maybe this war will be some sort of impulse to get all these countries that were not too sure about joining you or NATO to finally make the step towards uh, uh, membership or even on the side of EU and NATO, uh, make it much more easy for countries to join. I mean, we heard, um, I think it was from uh, Stoltenberg who said, like, uh, if it was Sweden that wanted to join NATO tomorrow, on the day after they will be in NATO, there's no problem with that. So. I mean, although there's some sort of favoritism in how NATO is accepting the future members, um, it, it, it could mean maybe the start of a new era for NATO or for the EU in general as well. Maybe a different sort of partnership between European countries. Yeah, I think one f thing's for certain, this in from so many different aspects, this, this war, I think, is going to be determining for, for kind of the future of at least a century and onwards, right? It's just such a big landmark it seems uh, in, in shaping so many different aspects so, uh, I think that's something we can state with quite certainty alright I think we're going to leave it there, I've covered a lot of ground and uh, I wanted to thank everybody, uh, all our guests obviously for, for coming on and yeah, hope you enjoyed the episode and uh, we'll see you next time thanks again to Noah for the music 2x4 on SoundCloud